Anthroposophy to the Point, a podcast of the weekly journal Das Gertianum. Welcome, everybody. Today we are speaking with Anna Weise about Helma of Clint. Yeah, hello. Nice to be here. It's a lovely day, and this is um, a topic that we've been pretty deeply involved with for a while, and it's one that's very important to the contemporary expression and reception of anthroposophy in the world. So a little backstory in how we came into this work. Um, in the fall of 2020, I helped host a colloquium in tandem with the, both the math and astronomy section here at the Gertianum and the uh, section for visual arts. And the theme of this was on the intersection between art, math, and spirituality. And we we're especially looking to follow in the footsteps of these two great artists, Emma Kuntz and Helma of Klint, who we saw were doing spiritual scientific research through their art. Yeah, as a part of that, there was also this sort of, yeah, difficult legacy, especially with Helma of Klint, that we were aware of, which is that in the world today, there is the story out there that even though Helmhoff Clint was obviously very involved with anthroposophy, that somehow Rudolf Steiner was a negative influence on her. And that's maybe understating some of the ways that people reacted to this. I've had, I've had people really, you know, get upset to me about Steiner because of how much they love Helmhoff Clint and how much they think or have heard, you know, he was a negative influence on her. <laughs> um, yeah, and so in that colloquium, Anna gave us a wonderful um, introduction to the research that she had been doing, trying to understand, okay, what was actually the relationship between Hilmoff Clint and Rudolf Steiner? What, based on the actual records that we have, what went on? So before we dig a little deeper in, um, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself, Anna, and, and your work here at uh, the Gertianum Archive and Rudolf Schoener Archive, and um, yeah, how you how you got involved with Helmhof Clint as well? Yeah, sure. I work at the Rudolf Steiner Archive. I'm an editor there. The Rudolf Steiner Archive wants to finish this big task of the Gesamtausgabe of the collected works of Rudolf Steiner until 2025. So there are still a lot of unearthed things which we want to be edited by 2025 and we want to have it published as well in 2025. So maybe we do a little bit uh, also of laying some of the biographical foundations for Helmhoff Clint. Mm -hmm. So so who was she? Had yeah, what, what is, what is, why is she so popular today? <laughs> why is she what? Why is she so popular today? Yeah. Well, you know, she was born in, I don't even have her exact years. I think it's 1862 or so. Um, you know, she studied painting, which uh, was possible in Sweden at that time. It wasn't possible in other countries yet, also not in Germany and in Switzerland for sure not. Um, so, and, and, and she had, uh, spiritual insights. She, very early on, she, um, became a member of the Theosophical Societies. She took part in events there and 
was a group of women called the Five, and they wrote. They had did lots of spiritual experiments, and I don't need to go too much into that. But she started. She had teachers, spiritual teachers, who would guide her. So she started to paint a big project. Um, the called it's called um, paintings for the temple. I believe in 1906. This is what she painted when she first met Rudolf Steiner. So she started these paintings in 1906, I believe. And they, and when Rudolf Steiner came to Stockholm the first time, it was 1908. So, and that was a very brave thing for her to do. Yeah, these were huge paintings. Some of them are three and four meters or even higher. I'm not totally sure. So, and very new abstract art, which until then wasn't a thing. <laughs> yeah, my, my understanding is that art history or art historians really saw Hilma prefiguring Kandinsky and Mondrian, that Hilma was doing some of these colors, shapes, and forms without a naturalistic or representational emphasis, even, you know, maybe even up to a decade before these other artists that in the canon are, are or were thought to be sort of the, the fathers mm -hmm. of, of abstract art. But no, there's, there's some way in which Hilma had tapped into some zeitgeist, maybe even beforehand. I thought to maybe also emphasize just a little bit more of the, the process that she was going through, like what, what she actually was doing as like what sort of spiritual and artistic processes she was involved with before she met Rudolf Steiner. You mean in her work or generally? Yeah. So, so like the, the, the work that the five were doing and, and her mm -hmm. process and I don't know, just like a little bit, let's just like paint a little bit more of a picture of, of her. Yeah. Well, when the five met, these was that was a group of five women. When they met, they would prepare themselves first for a spiritual undertaking, one should say. So they prayed. They read something out of the Bible. They had like an altar there where they <clears throat> sometimes they even fasted. Fasted, is that a word? Um, so they prepared themselves in order to have a spiritual discovery. And um, so one was a medium of these people and one would write down the messages of the, the spiritual people, <laughs> guides, teachers, whoever you want to, however you want to call them. So um, that was this early, early work. And um, they also did some autom automatic writing and there are lots of notebooks full with these kind of notes, if you want to call them. There are also lots of drawings, flowers, and there are some forms, shapes, signs, which are implemented in her later work. Um, so that some medium was in a way unconscious, not very conscious, and to, would take um, these notes of them, these messages of the spiritual guides. And at one point, Hilma of Clint had this request, as she calls it, it's all written in her, in her notebooks, um, if she would do this big project. 
So in a matter of two years, she, not two years, she started November 06 and finished in spring 08. So it's more one and a half years. She painted um, 111 paintings in this big abstract way. So it was hard work, I could imagine, because she had to, she was very serious about her work. She must have prepared herself like she did when the, the group of the five met. And so she was painting out of guidance of her spiritual teachers. And therefore, she later said um, that it also went quite quick. On the other hand, she didn't really know what she was doing. <laughs> and that was then the impulse for her to connect with Rudolf Steiner. She later wrote a letter to him asking him if he could help her understand her paintings. But until now, they haven't met yet. <laughs> so he came, actually, I could continue here. He came in March 1908 to Stockholm the first time and gave his first lectures in Stockholm. And it was the 30th of March, to be precise. Uh, he gave two lectures there. The first one was a um, lecture for members of the Theosophical Society only. Um, about the Rosicrucians. And the second lecture was about, I forgot, I think it was, oh yeah, about Goethe and um, his esoteric response to the riddles of the world. It's, it's a, a little bit wanky translation <laughs> of the German title. Goethe's Esoterische Antwort auf die Welträtsel is the German title. So when they met the first time, so she came to this lecture. She was a member of the Theosophical Society already. She came to this lecture. She was actually sent to this lectures by her spiritual guides. And there, in, in her notebooks, you can see how they prepare her to go to this lecture. <laughs> I know. So, and she, if I, no, I continue with the first meeting. Um, so, in her, and, and she herself thought that her work is connected to Rosicrucian path. So she asked him in her first, in their first meeting, she approached him after the, on this day, it's not very clear if it's one or the other lecture on this day, she approached him and asked him about the Rosicrucian path. If she thought that her um, work is connected with it and she was asking him about it. So that was um, their first meeting, and she wrote about that in her notebooks. And because at one point in her life later, when she was older, she would rewrite her notebooks in a way. So she would copy her notebooks in a proper way, I guess, so that it's readable. <laughs> and so, and then she added notes from her later perspective um, to what she um, copied and. And then it became clear for her that was all Rudolf Steiner, her, her future teacher, you could say. Yeah. So a, a lot going on in that, in that moment. Here was this woman, um, single, had achieved a, an artistic training at a time when that wasn't common for women. She was working on her own. She had worked super duper intensively with this group of women for, for five years or something like that. They, 
they met every Friday, had just completed this really huge set of, of paintings. Yes, when they when they met, she had not completely okay. <laughs> completed it. So uh, that's actually interesting because um, she finished in twenty eighth of April mm -hmm. in nineteen o eight. So just a couple months afterwards, yeah. Not months, even four weeks afterwards. Wow. Um, and and we know the date because she um, she wrote about it. Yeah, and so it's clear that Steiner was at, at, uh, a, a definitely a encountered her at a pivotal moment of her life. And, um, yeah, Let, let's, let's dig into this timeline a bit. So she had been, she had, was just about to complete these paintings. And after that, she actually stopped painting for a while. And this is why people speculate that Steiner had said something discouraging to her. Um, but there were also other things going on in her life. So first, there's clear that there was some sort of spiritual confusion or or that she was uh, she was seeking help in understanding her work in which she was a sort of passive medium to a, to a certain extent, that something was flowing through her that she didn't quite understand. She didn't understand the significance of some of the symbols that she was drawing. she had she had maybe gone a little too deep into murky waters. <laughs> And also at the same time, you know, she was uh, the, the only single person in her, in her family and her mother also became blind. Uh, is that, this is correct. And, and, and she needed to suddenly take care of her. Yeah. And, and, so, she, and she lost her atelier at the same time mm. as well because her mother became blind. She had to take care of her. Um, and then she didn't have her atelier anymore, her painting studio. Mm -hmm. And um, exactly. Yeah, and so there's this story that, you know, she and Steiner met, but we actually don't think they met quite yet. They, Not at that time, but they might have. I have two theories about okay, that, okay. <laughs> about but, the visit. But there's a story that she encountered Steiner. Steiner was this uh, perhaps um, so, so impressive as to be, you know, uh, a, a negative influence on her or that, that Steiner said something to her that caused her to stop painting. But there's also clear ways in which actually it's clear that she was um, experiencing something positive through Steiner Anthroposophy. We'll see that she was a member of the Anthroposophical Society for the rest of her life and involved with Anthroposophy really deeply. And also there are other clear reasons that she would have stopped painting for a while. I mean, can you, ima can you imagine having losing your atelier and then also having to take care of your mother suddenly that and also i mean just the exhaustion of that sort of the exhaustion i think is a very big thing in this whole story and also she clearly writes about having completed mm. her work i believe it's even in the letter to rudolf steiner or i read it somewhere else she writes about completing um her work so uh, we now know that it's the first Abteilung, the first chapter um, of her paintings for the temple, which end up being almost 200 paintings. At that time, there were 111. And when she finished, so there's a completion. Mm -hmm. It's not interruption. So at that time, she completed her work 
And she actually spoke to Rudolf Steiner that she would contact him once she's finished with her work, which she did. Immediately after she finished her work, she wrote him a letter. We know of that because she wrote a second letter, which we have in the archive. The first letter, we don't know where it is, but the second letter clearly indicates that she wrote to him already after she finished her work, um, but he didn't respond. And he responded in a way, if you have spiritual teachers and confidence, trust in them, you don't need me. But if you need occult advice, I'm there for, I'm there for you. So he gave um, lectures in Christiania, which is now Oslo in Norway, in July 1908. And she asked him that he would travel via Stockholm on his way back to Berlin, which is quite a detour. <laughs> so that was quite something that she would ask him that. Um, and he said, no, sorry, I don't have time. However, the first biographer of him, of Clint Orkefant, mm -hmm. for a long time it was only available in Swedish and then in German, but until now not even in English, I believe. Um, he thought that Steiner traveled to Stockholm anyway, even though he said no. And there is a slight chance that he did visit her in 1908 because there is a period of one week after he was in Norway or after he gave his lectures in Norway when we don't know where he was. You know, usually we don't know where Rudolf Steiner was almost on a daily basis, you know. Um, however, for this one week, we don't know. He might have had some vacation somewhere or he went to Stockholm. Um, there is another option. We for sure know that he did see her paintings in real. At some point. At some point. That is clear. There's proof of that, several, uh, several proof for that. So the other option, which might be the more plausible op uh, option, I think, is that um, he saw her again in 1910 when he came back to Stockholm for lectures. And um, first of all, you know, that's that's easy to do once you're in Stockholm, you, you just uh, go over there. <laughs> she didn't have um, an atelier at that time though, but you know, she could have shown the pictures anyway. There's also proof for that, kind of proof for that. In 1924, she was invited by the Swedish Anthroposophical Society to talk about her work mm -hmm. in Stockholm. And there she talked about this. So she, she wrote some notes in her notebooks. Therefore, we know she wrote like a concept, a beginning concept. She didn't carry through with that. So, and there we know that she told them in Stockholm that Rudolf Steiner saw her paintings 13, 14 years ago. I forgot exact, the exact year, but that would, if you calculate, that would be 1910, mm -hmm. around 1910. Okay. And then there's a sort of quiet period in Helma's life. She, she takes care of her mother until 1920. Her mother dies in 1920. And then immediately she jets off to Dornach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she did. 
And so this, the, that then inaugurates a, a, a long period of her life, about 10 years, where she was coming to Dornach quite frequently, that she was uh, engaging with the first class and, you know, lectures that Steiner was giving, as well as artistic impulses that uh, Steiner was, was giving to, to painters especially. And this is a part of, um, part of Helma's biography or work that seems to be kind of glossed over by a lot of people. The, um, it's clear that the, the paintings for the temple are, are deeply moving to people that the, the, this is, you know, what, what people spend hours in front of and cry in front of. And, but Helma herself seemed to be really deeply engaged with the, with the indications that Shiner was giving about how to be approaching art from, from a sort of spiritual scientific perspective. And, and I would even say from, from what I've seen, both of the anthroposophical art world and of Helma's work, she was a really shining example of how to, how to undertake these, these sort of spiritual scientific, um, research processes. Tell us a little bit more about these, these sort of later years with her engagement yeah. with anthroposophy. Yeah. Yes. She, the first time she came to, she came to Dornach to the Güte Anna was 1920. There was a conference with um, scientific lectures in, in autumn um, 1920. So she came to those um, and and that was the first, and that was a short visit of, I'm not sure, two weeks or so. And um, until 1930, she came like 10, 11 times, 12 maybe, to Dornach. And she stayed here for up to a, a half a year. And she took part in, in, in the lectures. She also met Rudolf Steiner at least once because we have, um, notes about that. Um, and yes, so she explored um, several parts of the anthroposophic. She became a member of the anthroposophic society. Um, when she came here in 1920, she became a member of the first class when it was uh, founded and um, she explored the um, connection between art and anthroposophy. Her notebooks were are full with notes about that. Um, Hilma of Klent had a very scientific approach to work. So in 1919, uh, also I want to come back to what you said, there's also the First World War in, in this in this whole, <laughs> so for people, you know, all over the world who are not so connected to German or European history, yeah. um, 1914 to 19, um, 1918, or yeah, there was the First World War and nobody could travel and Rudolfsteiner couldn't travel to, to Scandinavia, Scandinavia anymore. And of course, Hilma Klint couldn't travel anymore, anywhere either, at least not in, in Europe. That's also is very important. Nineteen 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 twenty. She's she did some totally different artwork. She um, observed plants almost on a daily basis, so she drew them as they appeared naturally, and then she drew Richtlinien. She calls them Richtlinien. It's hard to have an uh, English guidelines, trans guidelines. Kind of, yeah. It's like an, I call it like an essence of the plant, maybe the a spiritual essence of the plant. She observed the plant and tried to um, 
capture the essence of the plant in this Richtlinie. You see this big difference to her first work. I love her first work. There's something very um, true in it and very vibrant, and it's just amazing. Um, this other, there's another step. So she's much, much, much more involved personally. Instead of, instead of being a channel, instead yes. of having her limbs moved by some bigger force, she's herself going into these processes. She's training her capacity for observation. She's mulling over what she observes internally and coming up with these Richtlinie. These, they sort of look like seals, these little tiny little images that can, can oftentimes be, you know, something that you could wear on the you know, a breast pocket that like that size. You Don't know? come to this idea. Otherwise okay. somebody will do it. <laughs> uh, but they're, they're, they're quite, they're quite small and it, and it's, and it's a clear way in which she was. Yeah. Undertaking what we could call spiritual scientific research. Exactly. Through this meditative artistic process. With, uh, starting first with the sense world. Mm -hmm. Yes. So she was hundred percent the, she was her eye her ego mm -hmm. was doing it mm -hmm. she understood what she was doing consciously consciously yes and if you see these um richtlinien they are extremely beautiful as well you just have these little little um seals i think is a seals even a, a word, yeah. better english translation than guidelines but guidelines on the other way is good because i think richtlinien also The German word, which is similar to the Swedish word, um, they also tell you it's, it, it gives you, um, it's like an entryway into the spirit of the plant. Huh? Yeah. You could see it like that. Um, I also was thinking of giving a uh, Richtung. What is the English direction. word? Direction. So direction where a direction it, you give, it gives you direction. Um, like an, yeah, what you said, like an entrance. To an where yeah. an entryway to your own spiritual world work mm -hmm. with this plant, for example. Um, and, and it continued this kind of work later on when she got to know the wet on wet painting in, in the Goetheanum. So she continued with, um, observing plants and doing the same work now in watercolor, uh, in wet on wet watercolor. So there's, um, um, And actually, it's it's a big part of her work, which is not known yet mm -hmm. so much, if almost at all. I mean, it's the the exhibitions always have like two three examples of it, but it's mm -hmm. not so. It's sort of like an afterthought rather than something to be taken taken seriously. I do want to backtrack a little bit to emphasize that this sort of scientific approach to her art. Or this this theme of science with her art was was present. So even in her earlier work, you know, she was classically trained. Yes. She wasn't, you know, just jumping into these crazy abstract paintings to service and and actually worked as sort of like a scientific illustrator. Yeah, she worked for um, veterinarian. Veterinarians, yeah. Yeah. So she would. Um, there's a book out there with um, paintings of horses. Mm -hmm of all kind of anatom anatomical paintings of sicknesses hmm. of these horses. Wow. 
I want to see. Striking. I haven't. Wow. I know. I haven't seen it yet. So she worked there for two years with a friend of hers, mm -hmm. and yeah. So she is not just um, classically trained. She's also scientifically trained. Mm -hmm. You could say. Yeah. Because of this work, and also the the, the themes and the ways in which she was going about her work, even though there was this, you know, channeling aspect. There, she also was working. Um, First in series that she would often, mm -hmm. um, you know, really, it, it's almost like a comic book or, or something of the sort that, you know, her work is best viewed, not just focusing on an individual painting, but as a whole series. Yeah. And so there would be sort of, you know, uh, a progression or a succession of a, an evolution of a theme. And yeah. also the themes that she was working with were, were often, you know, the scientific breakthroughs or understanding that were really exciting, you know, at the turn of the century, um, really big scientific ideas were coming through at that time. And she was incorporating that into her work mm -hmm. as well. Yes. I think this, this part of that she worked in series mm -hmm. is extremely important. Um, because if you want to present something, which is not frozen, which is not that in a way. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit far Static, out. Static, <laughs> you know, yeah. Static. Yeah. So you have to present it in movement. Mm -hmm. So, and if you look at her series, and some of these series are extreme, there are like 20 paintings and more, um, there is this metamorphosis in her paintings. So they are moving shapes and colors and so on. They move in and out. And um, for me, this is a very important part that this is um, not just, um, in German, we call it a Raum, Bild. Um, a picture of space, yeah. Yeah, it's more Zeitbild. Yeah, time. So um, the, this, what's living in something, like in a spiritual being, in a plant, for example, or whatever she depicted, this um, moving part, we call it also the etheric being of something, um, this living part of something, the, which has a time aspect, mm -hmm. is also depicted. Um, I want to come back, you know, one element of this time spirit moment that she was at mm -hmm. is that she had this awareness that her work was way before its time. Yes. And I think this is part of what people are frustrated with or upset about is that she didn't get the recognition that she deserved. You know, she she ended up sort of just storing her all of her work in the attic or a storage facility and it didn't really get shown for for years and and some people i think blame that on steiner like i think there's a rumor that steiner said nobody can see these which you know. is an, um, but we, we don't no... have any of substantiation yeah. for it and I, but i could also imagine another element of that that would or another take on that which you know maybe steiner said nobody's going to understand these which to me feels like a a a, a deep intimacy or, uh, you know, a, a deep sympathy. But, you know, there's um, the notebooks don't tell you anything about that. So um, this is, there's no 
there's no substance for anything. We can guess, we can speculate. Um, we have um, one proof, though, of Rudolf Steiner's reaction to her work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there is, um, they talked again in 1924, and we have some um, indication of that in her notebooks. At one side, I think she was, she knew that she was brave and pioneering. Pioneering, no yeah. question. Um, on the other side, she did want to have her work exhibited. Mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty sure of that. And, and there was an exhibition of her work in London during the Anthroposophical World Conference there in 1928, organized by Dunlop. And so she had her work, some of her paintings were there, some of her big ones, because the program, or not the program, some, um, Besprechung, some conversation, conv not an, an, in, an, in an article later on, uh, it's written that there were huge paintings mm -hmm. exhibited, and she even gave a talk about them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the program says a talk about Rosicrucian um, in connection to her wow. work. Yeah. So her work was exhibited, just a little, you know, just a few paintings, three or so, three, four, five. <laughs> So they were exhibited, and um, she continued to try to have them exhibited um, and was not successful. Yeah. And there was a point, I forgot the exact year, it might have been in the 30s, I'm not sure, when she put um, these little crosses in front of many of her notebooks and, and paintings, and that was the decision to that these um, notebooks and paintings shouldn't be seen by the public um, only 20 years. They should be seen only 20 years after her death. Yeah. So there's no proof that Rudolf Steiner was connected with that mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. um, we actually do have proof that he reacted positively of her to her work. Because there was um, um, a note from the, the meeting, huh? Yes. So in 1924, she gave this talk in Stockholm to the members of the Anthroposophical Society. And there she spoke about um, that she talked with Rudolf Steiner about her paintings. Mm -hmm. And and she asked him, and there is this letter we have in the Rudolf Steiner archive, what should I do with these paintings? Should they be burned? Should they be destroyed? Um, so she asked him that. And, and he said, no, it would be a pity. And, and they are valuable. So there's a positive response, um, to her work from Rudolf Steiner. That's the only proof we have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have any other proof, you know? Um, and in the world is also, you know, there is some kind of weird thinking what anthroposophical art is and, in the world out there. Um, and just as an example that, that Rudolf Steiner did not despise and abstract art mm -hmm. is um, this one Swedish painter. I again forgot his name. Was his name Hermann? I forgot. Um, so this one Swedish painter, which, uh, not painter, sculptor, and he his sculptures were kind of 
cubistic, I would say. Um, so, and he was ecstatic about that. He wrote about his his art, and he was super excited. Rudolf Steiner about his work. So, a very abstract work. Mm-hmm. We don't have proof of prejudice. So, yeah, we have proof that he was open to that sort of work. Yeah, totally. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's speak a little bit about the end of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So she sort of stopped coming to Dornoch in, in 1930. And um, yeah, this has been seized upon by uh, some of the, I know, more uh, uh, an antagonistic or antipathetic uh, speculations as her not finding what she wanted out of anthroposophy. But we also know that contextually, that was a, a very, very challenging time for the anthroposophical society, a ugly time, we could say. Yeah. Yeah. After the death of uh, Rudolf Steiner in 1925, um, it was not an easy time how to continue without the leadership of Rudolf Steiner. So there were lots of fights, um, which resulted in 1935 in excluding, uh, um, of members of guy, um, leading members of the society. So yes, it was, um, difficult time. Um, and in 1930, when she was 30, when she was here the last time, there was a general um, assembly. General assembly, yeah. Um, of and which was very difficult. And she wrote in her notebook after that something like, "The society Odornach is doomed," something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So she was disappointed for sure um, in how anthroposophy continued after Rudolf Steiner's death. Um, totally understandable. Um, however, her connection to Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy itself um, never ceased. Yeah, she, she remained a member and she was receiving the periodicals and uh, partaking in, was she partaking in uh, local meetings or? Um, I believe so, yes. I think there was a, a later talk which she gave in the society there in, in Sweden. But you also have to see um, in 1930, she was something like 70. Yeah, and so I, it seems to me that, you know, just letting her life speak, I think there's this... Um, way in which there's clear, uh, clearly a really deep involvement with anthroposophy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that that's something that seems to be sort of glazed over. Yeah. And it's a shame because I, I feel like she's also showing how art as a spiritual process can be continued through anthroposophy. Yeah, she took this work very seriously. Until her death, um, her notebooks are full with notes about that and full with notes about um, what she found important in, in the books of Rudolf Steiner. And um, it was an important influence, impulse in her life for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she disappeared, you know, as she died and nobody knew of her. And for a long, 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 long time, longer than 20 years. Yeah. It was until the 80s or so that she she wasn't exhibited at all. 
gosh, I mean, the most successful Guggenheim exhibit ever. Yeah. One of the most prestigious museums in the world, in the world who's exhibited so many incredible painters. And yeah, Hilma, Hilma is this, she's, she's a sort of, uh, yeah, heroine of the, of the art world these days. Yes. And what is striking for me as well, which I observed in the Guggenheim was that there's this immediate response of the people, immediate excited response of all kinds of people. So she's speaking to the, the art historian as well as to, uh, to the student, to from ever kinds of walks of life. They are excited about her work. And I think you have to see it in real, not in books. <laughs> you know, this reaction doesn't come from books. This comes when you go and see it in, in, in real. Yeah. Hey, I want to thank you so much for this really lovely conversation. Um, yeah. yeah. You're very much welcome. Mm -hmm. Great. Hope to have you back on the podcast again sometime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for our next Happy to. adventure. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks, Anna. Bye. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. You can read the English edition of the weekly journal Dasker Tianum at daskertianum.com slash en.